Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show where our raison d'etre, our mission in life, is to serve you warmed-over heaping piles of leftovers of Catholic stories that you've already heard about and already know. On this week's menu, here's what we've got. Pope Francis opens the Synod on Synodality, which is either the boldest mass consultation in human history or sound and fury signifying nothing, depending on how you look at it. A new poll of American Catholics contains a stunning revelation on the Latin mass. The U.S. bishops get ready to rumble over the issue of communion for pro-choice Catholic politicians. Pope Francis vows to never stop being a pest. And finally, a tsunami may be headed for the prosecution in the Vatican's trial of the century. That's what's on our menu, so please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Monday to you. Hope you had a great weekend. Ours was a bit of a mixed bag, but on the whole, delightful. We, on Saturday, we went to uh, the wedding of our former, well, our current colleague, former employee, Claire Jean Gravet, used to be a staff writer at Crux. She is now the Vatican correspondent for Religion News Service and doing just a terrific job. She got married to her fiancé, Federico. I I honestly, for the life of me, cannot remember his last name. I can tell you he's from Milan. I can tell you he's a delightful young man. Uh, In any event, we are at Claire and Fede's uh, wedding. It it took place up north in Italy, about an hour and a half outside Rome, in the rolling hills of Umbria. The, The wedding mass was in this rustic country church that was adorned with a million and one flowers for the occasion. It was beautiful. And, and then the reception took place at uh, a winery that is located in the hills of Umbria, produces a, a fantastic, fantastic white served chilled. It was, so it was just, it was a magnificent event. And you know, here's the thing about a wedding. I noticed this about our wedding. My wife and I got married a couple of years ago in Key West. I've noticed it about every wedding I've ever gone to. Did you ever notice how at a wedding, like all the people who in any other context hate each other, nevertheless make nice? Like, you know, if you've got a husband and wife who split up a long time ago and it was a bitter divorce and, and, you know, there's like decades of acrimony. Nevertheless, for their child's wedding, all of that gets set aside and everybody has fun. You know, when we got married, our pastor, Father John Baker in Key West, said to us that there is a reason that Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a wedding banquet. Because it's that one moment in human affairs where, like, the better angels of our nature actually prevail. Anyway, it was a blast. The downside of the weekend was that Rome lost last night to to Juve, which is like, Losing to Microsoft. I mean, Juve wins all of the time. It's just not fair, but it keeps happening for reasons that surpass understanding. Also yesterday, though, uh, I had a chance to spend some time with a group of young African entrepreneurs. They're part of an organization called Harambe that promotes uh, entrepreneurship and innovation in Africa. They see that actually as the key to progress. Trade, not aid, tends to be their philosophy. 
It's a remarkably dynamic group. They got a shout out from the Pope in the Angelus Address, so lots of fun was had by all. All right, we begin this week with Pope Francis this week opening the Synod of Bishops on Synodality. This is a, a revamped, restyled, refabbed, reconfigured synod process intended to begin with wide consultation of the grassroots. So dioceses and parishes all over the world right now are, are supposed to be soliciting the, the thoughts uh, of rank-and-file Catholics on how to make the Catholic Church more synodal, which I, that's a fancy word. It basically means more consultative, more bottom-up, involving ordinary folks more thoroughly in the decision-making process. So that's supposed to be happening on the local level right now. Then there's going to be kind of national and continental level uh, reflections on that grassroots input. And then that's all going to be put in front of a group of about 300 bishops here in Rome, which will supposedly culminate in a series of recommendations to Pope Francis, who will then probably put together some kind of document based upon all of that charting a path for a more synodal church. Now, this has been described by enthusiasts as the, the, the largest grassroots consultation in the history of humanity. That is, quite frankly, a bit of an overblown claim, probably. I mean, it is true. This is the most systematic effort to tap the opinions of the world's 1.3 billion Catholics. But on the other hand, there are other consultations uh, of a similar scale on a pretty regular basis. I mean, think about it. India is a democracy. It's got a population of around 1.3, 1.4 billion, and they have elections all the time, which is, of course, a kind, and they have a referenda and so on, which are kinds of consultation. But in any event, it is, you know, pretty significant effort to get at what's, at, what's on the hearts and what's on the minds of the Catholic grassroots. Now, is that truly going to result in a revolutionized, transformed, now synodal Catholic Church? Well, we'll see. I mean, at the end of the day, a synod of bishops is still just that. It's a group of predominantly bishops, few other participants, but mostly bishops, sitting in a room trying to make decisions on the basis of the materials that they have been given. But those decisions are merely consultative themselves. It all comes down to what Pope Francis has to say. And he's going to produce a document, presumably, in which he pronounces on synodality. And the truth of it is, he's already pronounced himself more times than anyone can count. I mean, the number of times Pope Francis has talked about synodality is like the national debt. It goes up every second, almost. And, and therefore, the document he is likely to produce will probably echo a good deal of what he's already said. So, there are others, cynics will tell you, this is mostly sound and fury signifying relatively little. It's sort of the classic begin with a mountain, end with a molehill kind of exercise. I mean, we will see, time will tell. And in the meantime, it is going to be very interesting over the next two and a half, three years, to chart these efforts at consultation and see what they produce. Uh, all right, the Pew Research Center, and, and God bless them, thank God for them, because they are the premier pollsters on matters religious in the United States. 
usually two times a year, they conduct a survey of American Catholic opinion. Generally, the headline to come out of that survey is whatever American Catholics think about the Pope, and newsflash, it's always very positive. I mean, the lowest rating any Pope has ever gotten since these polls began is like in the high 60s. Usually it's in the 80s. They're the kind of numbers that politicians would drool over. This most recent poll found that 83% of American Catholics have a favorable view of Pope Francis. Basically unchanged since the last time they did this and consistent with the ratings he's gotten from the very beginning in 2013. By the way, it makes you wonder where this narrative that American Catholics don't like the Pope comes from, because solid majorities obviously do. But that's not really the news flash from this poll. Instead, it was a question about the Latin Mass. Now, if you watch the show, you will know that recently Pope Francis imposed sweeping new restrictions on celebration of the Latin Mass, basically eviscerating the permissions for celebration of the Mass that had been given by Pope Benedict XVI. Now, when it happened, and since, that decision on the Latin Mass produced an avalanche uh, of commentary on blogs, in the media, pretty much anywhere the chattering classes assemble. Okay, uh, we have spilled oceans of ink reporting this story, getting reactions to the story, getting reactions to those reactions, analyzing, dissecting, explaining, backgrounding. For, you know, th there was uh, virtually a three-week period in which we talked about almost nothing else. Okay? Here's what the, poll, the Pew poll found. In response to the question, what do you know about, or no, the question was, sorry, how much have you heard about new restrictions on the Latin Mass imposed by Pope Francis? Two-thirds of American Catholics, that's more than 66%, two-thirds said they had heard nothing. Nothing. Jack. Zilch. Nada. Niente. Nothing. Now, what do we conclude from that? Well, in the first instance, we conclude that the Latin Mass is a classic example of an issue that is of intense interest to a very small fraction of the overall population, and that the vast majority of Catholics aren't interested, pay no attention, just don't care. So that's the first thing to conclude. But I think there's a broader conclusion uh, out of all of this, which is, that we reporters, when we think about the Catholic Church, we think of it in political terms. All reporters are at heart political reporters. We're interested in policy and debates and disagreement and fault lines and fractures and all of that kind of thing. And we, in, we tend to assume that every Catholic parish come a Sunday is like a debating society in which people show up full of opinions about whether the Pope should be tougher on China, or whether women should be able to vote at the Senate, or whether pro-choice Catholic politicians should or should not get communion. Uh, that's just constantly in the air. Truth is, that just, that ain't so. Most Catholics have enough of politics Monday through Saturday. It's the last thing they want to think about when they go to church on Sunday. Those who choose to go to church do so because the music at the 1030 Mass is nice, or because, I, you know, the wife wants me to go, or father gives really good homilies, or 
or because I simply want to feed the better, better angels of my nature for an hour out of my week, whatever. It has nothing to do with politics. And those who don't go, it's not because they are making a political statement about whatever the Pope just said or did. You know, during the John Paul years, I would get asked by colleagues all the time if the church is going to lose members, if it keeps getting more conservative. And now I am asked if the church is going to lose members because it keeps getting more liberal. In both cases, I say the same thing. I don't know whether the church is going to gain or add, or is going to gain or lose members. What I do know is that it's not going to have anything to do with politics. The choice that the vast majority of people make about religious affiliation and practice is at once much simpler and also far more profound than any political calculus. I think that's the takeaway from this poll. All right, third, the American bishops are getting ready for their fall assembly. It will be November 15th through the 18th in Baltimore. Of course, we will have full coverage on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Top of the agenda is a document on the Eucharist. This is a document they voted to go forward with during their last meeting in the spring. It was a very controversial vote because it is expected to contain language, uh, among many other points, about the vexed issue of Eucharistic coherence, which is code language for whether people in public life, politicians, uh, up to and including U.S. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Catholics in public life, if their positions on moral issues such as abortion don't line up with church teaching, should they be able to receive communion at Mass? The argument for no is that receiving the Eucharist implies, signifies communion with the church. And if you are not in communion with the church and her teaching, then you should not present yourself for communion. But if you do, you should not be able to receive it. Now, the argument for yes, they should be able to receive it is that it is a fatal mistake to weaponize the Eucharist. It shouldn't be used as a political football and that pastors, after all, are supposed to be precisely that. Pastors, not politicians. That's the, the, the language that Pope Francis just used in a press conference in addressing this question himself. That issue is expected to be very much in the air in Baltimore. We will see how it shakes out. At this point, we don't quite know what the document says on this issue, so we don't quite know what the contours of the debate are going to be. But it promises to be a rollicking exercise in, wait for it, synodality. Be because this is a case in which I think we can expect American bishops with very different ideas to kind of let it all hang out. And in that mess, in the clash of ideas, we can only pray that something resembling wisdom emerges. However, <laughs> to save you the suspense so you're not sitting on the edge of your seats uh, over the course of the next month, let me tell you what is by far the most likely outcome. I mean, I'm talking 98% certain. Which is, the bishops are going to hash this out. There will be a, a clear contrast of ideas and approaches. Mm, you know, there will be some wordsmithing that goes on. A, a document will eventually be voted on. But the bishops are going to go home and do what they felt like anyway. So nothing the bishops' conference does or doesn't do 
is really going to affect practice at the retail level because at the end of the day, a bishop's conference is a social club. Each bishop is supreme and sovereign in his own domain. All right, fourth this week, Pope Francis gave a rollicking, barnstorming salute to the World Congress of Popular Movements uh, over the weekend. This is an organization that Pope Francis himself founded. It brings together, mostly from the developing world, but also from the developed world, labor unions and social activists and climate change activists and indigenous rights movements and land use movements and, and greens and virtually every kind of grassroots ferment uh, that you can imagine into one motley sort of umbrella organization broadly devoted to serving the interests of the world's poor and vulnerable people. Now, you know, in the old days, popes, their most important foreign policy speech of the year, their most important kind of social policy speech of the year, would be uh, when they addressed the diplomatic corps in Rome every January, kind of marks informally the end of the Christmas season here in Rome. But in the Pope Francis era, he still gives that speech, but he phones it in. It's something written by the Secretary of State. It's conventional, buttoned down, utterly predictable. If you want to know what's really on Pope Francis's mind uh, on these fronts every year, look at the message to these popular movements, because that's, those are his peeps. You know, that's where Pope Francis comes alive. And this weekend, he was at it again, hitting everything from ripping into Big Pharma for not releasing the, the patents on their COVID vaccines, uh, asking aloud, why in God's name don't you do that, to the arms trade and the inequities of free market global, global capitalism and, and climate change and, and on and on. What made headlines, though, was the way the Pope prefaced all of this. He said in this message, look, I know some people think I'm a pest because I keep talking about this stuff and I keep raising these questions, but I am not going to stop. I am never going to stop asking these questions and I am never going to stop campaigning on behalf of the poor. And so the headline became, you know, Pope vows not to stop being a pest. And I think that that is actually a great word for the reaction that the Francis papacy has generated. You know, there are some people out there, including some Catholics, who do kind of regard Pope Francis as a pest. Just, you know, he bothers them. And they kind of wish that he would go quiet or go away. Well, newsflash, Francis has made it clear that if you experience him as a pest, buy all the bug spray you want, put up all the mosquito netting you want, he is not going anywhere. He is going to continue to bug you. And of course, from his point of view, he is doing that in service of the gospel. All right, finally this week, look, the prosecution in the Vatican's trial of the century was already in trouble. I mean, that's just a plain fact. Truly said, this trial of the century is a trial that involves this $400 million real estate deal in London that the Vatican Secretary of State got itself involved in that went horribly wrong. 
And now you have 10 people, including for the first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, facing criminal charges in a Vatican court. Now, these charges were filed over the summer. The first hearing took place in July. This has been billed as a landmark moment in Pope Francis's cleanup campaign with Vatican finances, a, a milestone in the press for financial reform. However, what became immediately clear was that the prosecution was in trouble. And when the, when the court reconvened earlier this month on October 4th and 5th, that impression was consolidated when the prosecution, in a somewhat surprising development, actually stood before the three-judge panel and asked permission to start over. And they said, look, we would like to withdraw all of the charges we filed and all the evidence we filed so far. We'd like to go back to the beginning, re-interview all our witnesses, refile the charges. Basically, we want to hit reset. The court said no. They allowed them to withdraw a few charges, but said otherwise we're going ahead and also ordered them once again to turn over what are now known as the Perlaska tapes. These are video recordings of the prosecution's star witness, Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlaska, who was kind of the principal architect, the prime mover on the London deal, but who has now turned state's evidence, basically rolled over uh, on his former confederates, and is collaborating with the prosecution. His testimony was videotaped. Prosecution was ordered to turn it over in July. They fought that off, tried to say no. The court has now made it clear that its patience is at, is at its end. The tapes have to be turned over. We all assume there's got to be something on there that does not make the prosecution case look particularly good, because otherwise, why would they fight so hard not to have them see the light of day? Now, the latest development is that the prosecution had also asked magistrates in Rome months ago to issue an arrest warrant to place under house arrest Italian financier Gianluigi Torzi, who was another one of the defendants in this London case. He was one of the brokers in the deal. Now, the Italian Supreme Court this past week tossed out that arrest warrant, just threw it out. Uh, they didn't issue a written logic for the ruling, but the face value reading is that they found the evidence submitted by Vatican prosecutors unconvincing as to whether Torsi had actually committed a crime. This follows a ruling in the spring by a British judge because Vatican pro prosecutors had issued a similar request for an arrest warrant there. Torsi is based in London. And the British judge tossed it out and actually said that he had found, I'm quoting here, appalling misrepresentations and omissions in the evidence submitted by Vatican prosecutors. So now, two separate courts, two separate secular courts, asked to look at the evidence submitted by Vatican prosecutors against at least one of the defendants have reached the conclusion that it just doesn't pass the smell test, doesn't pass muster. That might indicate that the prosecution case is fairly shaky. The trial is set to resume in November. We will see. By that point, the Perlaska tape should already be out. We should have a sense of where things stand. I would note, however, 
that the ultimate irony of this case is that it involves a situation in which the Vatican actually lost money, millions of euro, in a London real estate deal. That's just unthinkable on the face of it. I mean, our managing editor, Charles Collins, lives in the UK, and as he put it recently, you could pick up a piece of dirt in the middle of a London street, and by the time you got to the corner, it would have increased in value. My point, even if there is nothing criminal here at the end of the day, there is some fairly rank incompetence and mismanagement involved. We will see if the trial creates any momentum towards fixing the culture of money management in the Holy See that continually allows this kind of thing to happen. All right, that is our show for this week. If you are inclined, please go onto the social media platform of your choice and give us a retweet, give us a like, give us a thumbs up, write us a, a nice review someplace. We are trying to get the show before the eyeballs of as many people as possible because we are determined to bilk every last morsel of taste out of our stale bucket full of news. Want to give a big thank you and shout out to our friends at Longbeard Digital Media, digital marketing and design company. They are the, the architects of this show and it is through their generosity and their expertise that it is possible. Also want to encourage you to find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. For the next seven days, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy. We will see you again next Monday.